0: Ready for a spring break to remember? Amtrak's got just a ticket for you and your crew. With share fares, you and your friends can save up to sixty percent. The more who travel, the more you save. Skip the hassle of driving through the Northeast while exploring DC, Philly, New York, and Boston. No middle seats and plenty of leg room are just an Amtrak away. And with stops right in the heart of your favorite cities, you'll arrive downtown, not out of town. Savings start with three travelers. Eight travelers required for sixty percent discount. Visit Amtrak.com/sharefares to book. Restrictions may apply. You are now listening to True Murder. The most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder with your host, journalist and author Dan Zupansky. Good evening. In March 2009, pretty vivacious Rhonda Castro plunged to her death from a 300-foot cliff in the Oregon woods. The only witness, Stephen Nichols, the father of her nine-month-old baby Annie told police investigators she slipped and fell. Yet Nichols' story didn't quite mesh with the facts, and some of his other actions raised suspicions as well, including just days after her death trying to collect on a million-dollar life insurance policy he'd taken out on his unemployed 23-year-old girlfriend four months earlier. What had begun with a 911 call to report an accident quickly turned into a homicide investigation. However, in part due to lackluster police work, the case grew cold. Then in 2011, Darty Robinson, a tenacious investigator with a Portland law firm, began digging into the circumstances surrounding Rhonda's death. The law firm represented Rhonda's mother, who believed that Nichols, 34 at the time, had murdered her daughter. She wanted to prevent him from gaining custody of Annie and the life insurance money. What Robinson discovered, including an attempt by Nichols to throw his first wife off a high-rise balcony in China, as well as sexual abuse allegations with Rhonda's underage sister, convinced her that Rhonda's death was no accident. So began her six-year battle to save Annie from her father and find justice for Rhonda. In the meantime, a parallel investigation into the case by co-author Steve Jackson, an award-winning journalist and New York Times bestselling author, and private investigator Tom McCallum posed the same questions. What really happened to Rhonda Casto on that cold, rainy afternoon on the Eagle Creek Trail? And what would become of her child? The book that we're featuring this evening is Saving Annie, book one, The Fall, a true crime series. With my special guest, journalist and author and publisher, Steve Jackson. Welcome to the program and thank you very much for agreeing to this interview, Jackson.
1: Hi there, Dan. Uh, as uh, always, a pleasure to uh, talk to you.
0: It's always a pleasure for myself, and I know it's a real treat for the audience. You uh, only deal with extraordinary cases, and this is no exception. Let's uh, start right away with, I guess we won't give too much away, but we want to talk about that this, this uh, Saving Annie is being published as a series of four books broken into distinct uh, parts of the investigation, so just explain what saving Annie is as part as part of that four book series
1: Well, okay, um yeah, we're trying something new here, which is uh the, the serialization of this book the The entire book's called Saving Annie, and then uh each one of the four parts, which we're also calling a book, as you sometimes do. Um, it is a distinct, um, part of this case. It was, uh, even before I made this decision to try to do this, it was, uh, it, it just lays itself out that way naturally as, as four parts. Um, so, um, I kind of came up with this idea of, uh, you know, I've been, uh, kind of watching the, um, the serialization of uh, podcasts such as uh, Serial which became very um, well known and noticed uh, sure. how each part of the series um, sort of created buzz and people uh, talking about the first part and then and then looking forward to the second part and and I remember back um, when I was a kid and I used to subscribe to Boy's Life and they'd have a story in there and and um, and I couldn't wait till the next month. And I'd talk to my friends about it, and we'd wonder, you know, what happens in the next part. So I thought I would uh, try this little experiment in um, publishing, and see, uh, you know, how it's uh, how it worked this way. There there are several other reasons. Uh, one is it is a uh, there's a lot of material to this book. Uh, it, if you take all four. Um, parts of the book. It's a, a very large book, especially in the, the way I wanted to uh, write about it and the detail I wanted to include. So, um, you know, that was sort of the emphasis behind it.
0: Now, let's talk about the genesis of this entire project. In December 2011, you got a call from an old friend, Tom McCollum. You were surprised, but you hadn't heard from him for about 20 years. Uh, now tell us uh, who he was, and when you met, and the circumstances, and just of, of your friendship. And before you talk about the content of that call, it originally he had called for advice. You'd say you said after all these years, but tell us a little bit about this relationship, and tell us then about that call and what he had to say.
1: Well, I would uh, originally met Tom in. Uh uh, nineteen ninety um the uh head of the oregon corrections department um had been murdered in january of nineteen eighty nine and I was an investigative reporter for a newspaper in uh Salem oregon at the time and had been covering this story for for quite a bit it it was uh, uh, a very um, uh, different story in that uh, it had quickly become apparent to me that the police were sort of, uh, had settled on, oh, it must've been a, um, uh, a stranger came upon, uh, the corrections department, uh, director Michael Frankie in, in the parking lot at night, uh, robbed him. Was a robbery gone bad. Um, but there were a lot of things were going on at that time, um, that indicated it might be something uh, more of a conspiracy, um, and so I've been working on this story for about a year um when the police had arrested a uh a young man a meth addict uh small time criminal named Frank Gable and um and had settled on him as as the suspect not just the suspect that but you know this, uh this idea that he had Um, you know, come upon Frankie, tried to rob him, got in a fight, killed him. Um, And and a lot of that just didn't didn't add up. Um, And it's a great story itself. It's uh, one I plan on writing someday. And uh, even though it's been, like you said, it's been 20 some odd years. Um, But anyway, as I was uh, writing about this story and Frank Abel had been arrested, I get a call from a guy identifies himself as Tom McCollum and says he's an investigator for uh, Gable's defense attorney and wants to know if uh, I can talk to, um, if he can talk to me. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm i an investigative reporter and I was yeah. doing my own work. And I spent a year doing this and this guy calls up and wants to know everything I know. So I basically told him in uh, several choice words uh, where he could go with that and hung up the phone. Um, he called back and, and tried to get a little bit farther. And I, I repeated the, uh, uh, the process of hanging up the phone and he called the next day and he kept at it and, uh, said, Hey, I'll buy you lunch. Uh, you know, we don't even have to talk about this. And, um, from there, it, uh, you know, I, uh, he gained my trust. I gained his trust. Um, he was, uh, he, we both were working from different ways, uh, different avenues on the same story, and, and over time became friends and uh, fishing buddies and and everything else even long after that story uh, was gone. And then I moved from Oregon uh, and back uh, to Colorado, and uh, we didn't completely lose in a while on the phone or emailed or something like that. But when he called on in December 2011, it, I hadn't heard from him for quite some time, and. Uh, as you noted, it was a, a different kind of phone call.
0: Now, he talks about, uh, he's asking you about advice about a book, so he's endeavoring to do that. And, of course, this is a good person to call for advice would be you. But uh, he also has a, a conversation with you about a client, this Gary Castor, who's an extremely rich guy, like you say, a multi-billionaire. And he had employed Tom and asked Tom to help him look into a guy that was, being a private investigator, look into this guy who was dating his daughter, Mindy. Now, you must have found this interesting. What did he say about this person, and who was this person that he had found? And what had he found out about this person that was dating his daughter?
1: Right. Uh, the, basically, uh, Gary Cafter uh which is an uh, an alias for someone else, Um, uh, you know, was uh, very concerned. You know, he's a very wealthy man, as you pointed out. So, you know, he's got to be careful about uh, who gets close to his family. And um, uh, his daughter had brought this guy uh, over. He had a young daughter, three or four years old at the time, and, I uh, brought her to a you know a family Christmas thing or brought him to uh the family Christmas thing with his daughter and and nobody got a good feeling from him. um they just felt he was you know creepy and uh he's sort of uh monotone and emotionless and um and, and a number of people there, including the ranch foreman where uh this uh wealthy person and his family uh have a ranch there in central Oregon. And so he just called Tom to sort of run a background check on this guy and see if there was anything notable or if maybe he was just an odd duck and, and they were all, uh, you know, misjudging him or something along those lines. But Tom started to look into this uh, guy, ran some uh, crime checks on him, and uh, found some restraining orders for uh, violence, uh, domestic violence. Uh, there were some allegations of sexual improprieties. And, um, and, and started finding more and more about this guy that, you know, obviously red flags with the domestic violence and the restraining orders. And, um, and so uh, basically, and then right toward the end of it, uh, they discovered uh, because this guy was involved in a custody case um, over the child, um, found out that he was also had been suspected, of um, having girlfriend, the child's mother, off a cliff. And as Tom uh, looked into this, it seemed like, you know, okay, whatever happened to this case, did they resolve it? Did they close it? Did they determine it was an accident? Was it still going? Um, And Tom found out that uh, it was still an open investigation, uh, but they didn't seem to be doing much.
0: Now, as a result, when you heard this story and you got this information, um, he's planning to write a book. What's the agreement between the two? What do you guys decide to do as a result of what you've just heard and everything, all the information that he has, and both of you in the position that you are at that time? What do you decide to do?
1: Well, actually, um, Tom was working on a, a different book, a different true crime Um I was the one, uh, well, sort of together, I guess. Um, he, uh, you know, I started talking about it. It's an interesting case. Maybe I'd be interested in it uh, as a book. Um, and uh, Tom was also looking that he could use some help uh, on the investigative end um, as far as I'm pretty good at paper chases and uh, finding documents and and as well as interviews and that maybe coming at it from uh, not together necessarily. I wasn't working as a PI and he wasn't necessarily working as a a journalist, even though uh, at at a different point um, he's been wanting to write true crime books. And I said, well, you know, why don't you um, learn uh, by working with me on this book um, as a writer and journalist as well. Um, So basically we just, sort of combined forces, if you will, and started looking into the case. Uh, there was a lot to run down as far as documents and, and finding people um, who uh, could have been uh, witnesses, uh, some people who uh, would have popped up on the witness list if I was a uh, detective and uh, who hadn't even been talked to um, by the police at this point, um, though they would at a point. Um, right. And so that's, that's sort of how we got started on it and started finding more and more. And, you know, there's the little girl was uh, sort of central in this, Annie. Right. And as we started looking into this, we're, we're wondering, did did the mother, Rhonda Castro, um, you know, had the police done everything they could to make sure that... Um, you know, her, it, her, the case was closed one way or the other, uh, either through justice or, uh, if they ruled it uh, in some other way, then then fine. But also for the little girl's sake.
0: Yes, you write that she was nine months old when her mother died, and the, Annie was living currently with her father, uh, Nichols. So, that was a big reason for writing this book and wanting to do this investigation, as you write. Now, tell us a l- about what you find about the investigation itself. Obviously, this was March sixteenth, two thousand and nine, in Hood River County. Of course, you're re-examining this after the fact. What? Tell us about the actual crime itself.
1: Well, the nine one one call. Again, I should this, this, say. Right, the nine one one call is that uh, uh, on March sixteenth. 2009 about six o'clock uh, in the evening uh the this is in hood river oregon which is a, a town uh in the in the columbia river gorge and uh this call they get a call from the parking lot of a popular trail there called the eagle creek trail um from a man who first talks about that he needs help and can you send somebody and all this sort of thing and Kind of takes him a, a minute or two before he uh, he lets them know that his um, girlfriend has fallen from the cliff and he uh, believes that she's dead. Um, and and that kind of starts the whole process of uh, obviously the police showing up and eventually a search and rescue team showing up. Um, but it's it's uh, it's an odd nine one one call. Uh, just there's some aspects about it uh um, you know he's obviously more concerned that he's cold and wet um, and 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 some other things that will come into play later on in this investigation
0: mhm of course, that nine one one call is recorded, and of course people investigators police uh, everyone will look at that and review that later. You talked about the idea that uh, one of the first things that people can judge and police do and they do put in their reports is the behavior. And you talked about the coldness. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about what this whole idea that he was so cold and preoccupied with his own condition rather than what some people might think is a normal response to his girlfriend, his fiance, uh, just being dead. So Tell us what the first responders, or or he's talking to the 911 operator, and then there's the first responder, and what does that first responder encounter in terms of behavior from this person?
1: Well, again, it's uh, this person um, who we learned by this time is Stephen Nichols. um, He talks about that, you know, he tried to get to the body, and he tried to swim up a creek, and he's wet. And cold, and uh, it is um, March in Oregon, and it had rained and uh, some even some sleep that day, so it's it's chilly outside but um, you know i, I I'd, I'd ask anybody out there if you're hiking on a trail and your uh, the person you love your fiance um, plunges off the cliff um, what is your uh first thing you're probably going to say to the 911 call uh, operator um, uh, that you're cold and can somebody please help you or are you going to say uh, my go- girlfriend fell off a cliff and I think she's dead and and then maybe, by the way, I'm cold and I need some help. Um, right. it just, it's just, uh, you know, those sorts of things that... Um, you know, you look at it as an investigator, it's uh, it's uh, demeanor um, uh, evidence, if you will, um, and and demeanor evidence does count in the courtroom, by the way, and um, and and so these sorts of things that some people were almost right away, and by people I mean the first responders, um, were kind of taken back a little bit. Um, by this guy who is uh, sort of phlegmatic uh, when he speaks, is uh, monotone. He's still more concerned about how cold he is. Um, and then when they get him in the ambulance, now he's had a little bit of time in his car with the uh, the heater warmed up, but his body temperatures are normal.
0: Yeah. Right away, too, you have one of the first responders is a person from an in, in, interesting unit called the Crag Rats. And these guys are uh, experienced with um, rescue. And also, this person personally is experienced with the trail itself and uh, where it might be more difficult or more more prone to somebody having any kind of situation since there is a place called Suicide Point on this trail. Um, tell us what his impression was you say about other people doubting you talk about doubting the story but this person based on that experience has even more of a I'd say a stronger opinion about that
1: well um, yes Jeff Pritchard who was both the uh, uh, chief of the Cascade Locks which is the nearest small town to uh, this trail uh, of their fire department and a paramedic um, as well as being one of these crag rats, which is oh, one of the top uh, search and rescue uh, teams probably in the country. They've, they've been at it a long time. They, have, they do mountains. They do rivers. They do just about everywhere. Um, they have a lot of territory they cover. Um, and he struck, too, just when he talked to uh, Nichols at the parking lot uh, about this guy's demeanor and um, some of the things he's saying uh, as far as, you know, he uh, pulled her from the river and uh, and that he tried to get up the river and tried to swim up the river um, and, and a number of little things that, you know, he just kind of at that moment files in the back of his head as sort of strange. Um, and then when uh, another volunteer shows up, um, Fairly quickly after that, they head up the trail to see if they can find the point where she went off, so they can locate her body. Um, Nichols had said he thought it was a mile up the trail, or a mile and a half, or or something along these lines. So they had to, and it's getting starting to get dark, so they had to kind of hurry up there and and see if they can spot her um, from the trail up above.
0: Yeah, you you say that they have difficulty even getting down there. So we'll talk about that. But at the same time, you have that the uh, de- deputy Smith is is has heard the the nine one one call. Now he wants to know to hear the story. So police want to hear the story from from Steve Nichols. And so, what does he say about uh, Rhonda, their hike, her behavior, and the accident itself,
1: as he describes it? Well, um, Nichols, uh, first, uh, and, and he will change his story a number of times throughout this, uh, sure. talking to police uh, officers until he finally, uh, quits talking at all. Um, but, uh, you know, his basic uh, thing is they went up there and, um, and she was acting crazy, even though, uh, he says he doesn't remember her doing any drugs or smoking any pot or, or anything else like that. And, uh, and she's running down the trail with a, a towel around her neck, playing uh, like she's Supergirl or Superman, and and running down the, this trail and slips and goes over the edge, um, and uh, and and that's his basically his story that they were having a hike, they're trying to lose weight. Um, she's uh, doesn't mention any. In fact, he denies there's any sort of argument or fight or or anything else along those lines. So, um, you know, basically, that's his story, is that she's acting a little crazy and running down the trail uh, before she falls.
0: He also is is witness to Steve Nichols not answering his phone and then inquiring who that would be and why he wouldn't be answering his phone. Um, And that's the first we hear of a... the sister that Rhonda has, Melanie, but also that um, that he is going to have a hard time telling Rhonda's mother what has happened. Uh, tell us about this phone call and what Smith maybe surmises from this, if anything.
1: Well, during this time when they're talking, he does receive a a, a couple of calls and and he basically tells the officer, oh, well, that's that's uh, her mom wondering where where she is and, um, you know, what do I tell her and do I contact her. At, at that time, it, it's not terribly suspicious other than uh, uh, the police officer notes it and that, uh, you know, and tells Nichols, don't worry, we'll have a, once we've confirmed all of this, we'll have uh, law enforcement uh, uh, get in touch with the family and let them know. Um Later on, it will become kind of interesting in that uh, when they do look at his phone again, when they uh, ask to see his phone and he hands it over for a little bit, um, all of the messages that he'd received or sent um, weren't on the phone. They weren't on the caller ID. Um, And Hmm. so that makes you wonder, well, where did they all go and did he erase them all? And if so, why did he erase them all? right
0: what are the uh, we get back to the crag rats again so when they go down and finally find the body what is the condition of Rhonda's body what do they note and of course they've already spoken to Steve Nichols and he has given them account of how she got down there under what circumstances tell us what they just even see immediately
1: well, um, and I don't, I don't want to give too much away here. It's, it's an no. important part of the book. But, uh, we can get into, for one thing, it, it was very difficult. And these guys, I mean, they, they climb mountains, uh, they rope in, they, they do everything. It was very, very difficult um, to find a place, one, to, to even get down the cliff. Um, and then they had to make their way back uh, towards the body um which was a which was a struggle for even two very experienced mountaineers um and then when they find her um one of the, the one of the main things that they uh, that they noted um, that I'll I'll reveal here is that Nichols told a couple of different first responders that when he looked over the edge, he saw her laying in the water of uh, eagle creek um. Right. The distance between the cliff and Eagle Creek was probably about uh, 160 feet, Um, so almost, what, uh, 60 yards or or something along there, not quite, Um, 55. Uh, But anyway, there's quite a distance between the cliff and the creek. Um, When they find Rhonda's body, she's about, halfway between the cliff and the creek so if you're going to go with Nicole's story well then she's was he found her laying in the water one of the crag rats jeff pritcher that he pulled her from the water um and then uh, she's a good um 80 feet from the creek towards the cliff dragged up a slope um with a with a uh, one of her leg bones jutting from her thigh, um, and obviously uh, not uh, not alive, even though he said that he tried to give her CPR. So it struck Cragrat as, well, you found her in the water. One, um, wouldn't you just pull her up on the bank and turn her over and try to do CPR there? And then, if that didn't work, why would you then try drag her 80 feet up the hill, um, only to leave her where she was left, uh, and uh, and then make your way back to the uh, the parking lot? Um, they didn't see any evidence of any disturbance of the ground either on the way um, to her body, and they had to cross a a couple of different places where it's likely that some sort of track would have been left. But even around the body. None of none of the area had been disturbed and that was one of the clues that they had that, you know, this, this story just isn't working the way the um you know, Nichols was saying it did. And so they quickly determined that it was a good possibility this was a crime scene, so they took photographs and backed up out of there. There were, there were a number of other uh, details uh, that I'll, I'll let readers find in the book um, as to what uh, how they came to that conclusion, but uh, that was one of the main ones, is that he said, oh, she's laying in the water, and uh, so if she was lying in the water, why did he drag her so far up there where she's obviously got these horrendous injuries and um, and, and leave her where she was? You
0: talk about the ensuing investigation, and again, uh, if the, not to give anything away, but you talk about the Deputy Smith is at the hospital, and an interesting drug, gamba You say it's anti-seizure, antidepressant, nerve pain medication, How does this drug play into this? And can we talk about the autopsy and its results, especially given what Nichols has said, that he is more than intimated that she was high on drugs on that cliff or on that trail. Um,
1: Well, I guess it comes down to the gabapentin is, it's actually more of a, um, used more as a pain medication, though uh, there's some okay. uh, antidepressant qualities uh, in it. Um, she had, Rhonda did have some postpartum uh, issues, but remember, this is nine months later, and she'd actually stopped taking it for a while was back taking it she, um, on her doctor's advice, but um, even in the autopsy, it was it barely registered. Um in fact she barely registered for anything. She had a little bit of can-, can- uh, cannabico- or what am I saying here the the uh, residue left over from marijuana, but it was at such right. a low level that it also could have been either a false positive or that she was around people that smoked um She had told people and most people believed her um that especially after the birth of her daughter, she had stopped um taking any kind of drugs um and but what she did have in her system was uh, uh legally prescribed okay round two name something that's not boring
0: a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh oh sorry we were looking for chumba casino
1: and in such minimal amounts that it it's hard to imagine that she was having some sort of drug reaction. She certainly didn't have any sort of hallucinogens in her or or anything along those lines, or enough um, pot residue to uh, uh, you know have caused her to run down the trail like Superman,
0: right. Now, in the ensuing investigation, of course, you have the Deputy Smith, but he's invo- he's enjoined by a guy named Deputy English, and these guys want to find out what he does for a living, and, of course, they have to investigate all the possible motives for this crime if it's not going to be an accident, so they're doing their due diligence. Uh, tell us about what kinds of questions they're asking and and what kind of answers they're getting from... Steve Nichols regarding what he does, what she does, things of that sort.
1: Well, um, early on in the initiation, uh, the uh, investigation, these uh, these first interviews um, are uh, they don't delve too too deeply, but they you know he tells them he's a day trader and he makes um, that's how he makes his money. And a day trader is someone who buys and sells stocks all within a few hours, trying to make a little bit of that on these transactions. Um, in that uh, Rhonda basically did not work. she was unemployed, um, she took care of uh, the baby uh, she spent uh we find out uh, that she spent time both with Nichols and lived with her mom um part of the time and uh and so that's that's sort of their financial uh situation at this time um and then I'll, I'll let you lead me into the next parts where I think you're going. Let's just use this as an opportunity, Steve.
0: Um, Stop for a second to talk about our sponsor, which is Talkspace. Tonight's episode is sponsored by Talkspace, the online therapy company that lets you message a licensed therapist from anywhere at any time. All you'll need is a computer with internet connection or the Talkspace mobile app. That means you can improve your mental health even if you've had trouble making time for it in the past. Get something off your chest whenever you need to Talk about everyday challenges at work or at home. Just chat about life. There are no extra commutes, no leaving the office, and no judgments. Remember that therapy isn't just about venting your innermost thoughts or digging into childhood memories. It's all about practical, everyday strategies for stress management and living a happier life. Having a therapist simply provides you a designated person for you to talk to who is trained to listen and help you make positive changes. The Talkspace platform has over 2,000 licensed therapists who are experienced in addressing life challenges we all face. To match with a perfect therapist for a fraction of the price of traditional therapy, go to Talkspace.com slash murder and use the code MURDER to get $45 off your first month and show your support for this show. That's MURDER and Talkspace.com slash MURDER. Now, Steve... We were talking about the ensuing investigation and what Steve Nichols had to say. How do they get to the point where they, uh, you talk about another person becoming involved, a Corporal Mickelson, when do they first hear some rumblings of the real motive or in their mind a motive for this murder? Who do they talk to and what do
1: those people say? Well, the uh, the initial uh, investigators are with Hood River County uh, Sheriff's Office, and that's uh, Detective uh, um, Tiffany and Deputies English and Deputy uh, Smith, who you you've discussed. Um, Rhonda and Steve and Rhonda's mom and family all live in Portland, which is uh, Washington County. So there's there's some inter uh, office uh, dealings here, and one of the Washington County deputies, uh, Mickelson, who you've talked about, um, uh, calls English, and and this is within, you know, uh, a very short amount of time, within a a couple of hours of uh, reaching the trailhead, talking to Nichols, um, and then finally they are able to locate... um, Rhonda's mom and uh, through her, and the rest of the family, and uh, start talking to them. And right away, um, the family says they think that he did it, and they uh, note that he had taken out a large million-dollar, um, they thought it might even be more, uh, life insurance policy on Ronda, And this, of course, uh, immediately sends up a red flag.
0: Now, at the same time, or soon after, they talk to the mother, Julia Simmons. Um, then there is a Rhonda's sister, Melanie. How do they get to the point where they hear any rumblings of the relationship with well, Melanie and Steve?
1: Well, um, both uh, a little bit from the family, but also uh, one of Melanie's uh, former boyfriends, Calls the police um, after he sees a, a broadcast, television broadcast about Rhonda falling. Uh, even though it did not uh, mention Nichols by name at that time, he sort of guessed, um, and he had, he knew about the insurance policy and he knew about some other things. But what he knew that the detectives didn't have uh, as much of at that time was that when Melanie was 15 years old, and this was uh, would have been four years earlier, um, Nichols had had a sexual affair with her um, and had continued this uh, affair for quite some time, and um, that Melanie had actually uh, at one point got angry and told uh, Rhonda in front of her mom and Nichols uh, that they were having this um, affair and obviously Melanie is uh, is underaged and Steve Nichols at the time of this uh, affair started was 30 years old um, and it became obvious in some of the investigation that ensued from that that Nichols was uh, had an infatuation with uh, Melanie Castro who was Rhonda's uh, younger sister and um, uh, to the point where he was texting her within uh you know while well, actually he picked her up and took her over to her mom's house after Rhonda died uh, Melanie said he said a number of uh, odd things such as it you know, only takes a baby six months to forget someone and um and it's it's uh, uh what's really odd is he the number of texts to her afterwards. And there's the, you know, hey, we're friends still, and, uh, you know, can I talk to you, and and these sorts of things. Nowhere in there does he say, I'm grieving for Rhonda. And this is supposedly his fiance that he, um, you know, allegedly was taking on this hike to as a romantic place to propose to her. Um, and, uh, you know, there's there's just another one of these, flags that the police are seeing uh, of you know why the, Why do none of these texts say anything about Rhonda they're all about um, you know uh, getting together with Melanie and um, you know inviting her up to uh, where he's living now with his um, family and helping him take care of Annie and, and all of these sorts of things so now the police start working on two different uh, 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 motivators and uh, one is the the million dollar insurance policy and the other one is that uh, he obviously wants to be together with Melanie um, Rhonda's younger sister and um, and according to melanie now uh, had told her that uh, they couldn't be together as long as Rhonda was around
0: What Mickelson is hearing and the police are hearing, too, is incredibly are are jokes shared between Rhonda and Steve that the family is privy to. What kind of jokes would these people make and how cryptic would they be
1: considering? Well, this this, uh, insurance policy that we've talked about... um, Steve arranged for this in uh, Steve Nichols arranged for this in November of 2008, just four months before. In fact, um, the policies uh, it, it, which is a whole another can of worms in itself, just how they got these policies. A uh, million dollars on someone who was unemployed is uh, uh, pretty unusual. But yeah, you, going forward, from there they didn't even receive the policies until uh, January. Um, but anyway, they have, uh, you know, they both took out a uh, – uh, they made uh, – Nichols originally only wanted to have about 250000 on his policy and a million on um, on Rhonda's. Uh, but uh, the insurance company um, made them both have million dollars equal policies. So they now have these million-dollar policies. And, and Melanie says she's around when they're uh, this couple, Rhonda, her sister, and uh, Nichols are – uh joking about you know who's going to kill who as far as to get the the life insurance policy um and enough to the point where Melanie was actually concerned about it she thought you know uh, that this this couple fought a lot um they really did not belong together um just to start with but uh um anyway they you know so they're joking about uh Killing each other, um, Nichols at some points talks about uh, shoving Rhonda off a cliff, uh, according to Melanie. Now we have to always remember that some of this is coming along um, after the fact. This, these are uh, stories and um, uh, anecdotes that are being told to the police uh, after the fact. But the the uh, very uh, you know one of the facts is that these are being told within a day, two days um, after Rhonda's death. So, again, it's, it's how quickly these, uh, you know, if these stories are being made up, they're being made up very quickly, and everybody is getting their story together very quickly. Um, right. Uh, all, all apparently, you know, trying to, to get Steve Nichols. Um, at least that's from his side, that's what he would be uh, saying on that.
0: Now, at the same time, too, we have this other idea that they have to investigate the idea of to looking at Rhonda's sister, Melanie, and that love triangle possibility motive. But also, they find out information regarding a jeweler named Kassab Jewelry. Jeweler. Tell us about this story and what they find and what Steve has to say about it and what they find contrary to that.
1: Well, um, part of this, as, as I mentioned a little earlier, part of it was that uh, Nichols uh, was going to ask Rhonda to marry him. And, uh, in fact, Rhonda told her uh, grandmother um, before they left on this hike, he's either going to give me a ring or push me off a cliff. sort of happened, Justin, and sort of uh, you wonder, you know, um, uh, w- w- is this thing she was really thinking about? Um, but it um Nichols told uh Julia Simmons, who is Rhonda's uh mother, that he had purchased uh, an engagement ring uh from this uh jeweler, Kassab jeweler, which is a uh a very nice jeweler in downtown Portland, Oregon. And uh that, you know, they picked out the ring and that he'd purchased it for her and he was taking her Uh, On this trail, uh, Julia's boyfriend noted a jewelry bag in the back of the car um, on the seat when they left. And so everybody, "Hmm, maybe he did buy uh, a ring and um, was going to uh, 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 propose to her. And and they did know that they had been, the couple, uh, Rhonda in particular, had been to the jeweler uh, looking at various cuts and Uh, settings. Uh, Steve had gone a couple of times that always seemed sort of, uh, you know, his least favorite thing to do Um, and so Julia asked him, well, okay, well where is the ring? And uh, this is within a day or so uh, uh, maybe two uh, after Rhonda's death and he told her, according to Julia, um, that he had already taken the ring back. Um, and uh, got a refund for it, which is, you know, if you think about it's uh, awfully quick to decide I'm taking the ring back for my fiancé who just fell off a cliff. Um, anyway, Julia tells a police officer that she called the jeweler and asked them about this and that they said, well, we remember the couple because we keep a very detailed log of who comes in and looks for Uh, jewelry and that sort of thing, but they never purchased one, much less uh, ever come in to um, return a ring. There was no ring bought for him to return. Right. Also, what they find is that,
0: and you say this is it's going to be difficult to get around this, or this is going to be problematic, is what you say, is that When Melanie made these allegations when she was 15 years of age, a lot of people didn't believe her, including her mother. Um, But someone did and called authorities and police. Why is that? Right. Tell us.
1: Well, there's actually two crimes that are being investigated at this point. One is uh, or po- two potential crimes. One is uh, what happened to Rhonda? Did was she did she slip and fall, or did she was she pushed? Uh, so that's a homicide investigation. But now there's this uh, secondary investigation into whether uh, Nichols is guilty of sexual abuse um, uh, of a minor, and which is also a felony. And and so there's that investigation going on as well um, now. Uh, you know, they're, they're thinking ahead, looking at the possibilities of this charge, and uh, if it gets to court. And what and the problematic part was is that when Melanie told everybody that I'm having an affair with Nichols, he denied it, um, immediately uh, said she was a liar, um, and uh, no one else believed her either um, at that point when she said it. But uh, Melanie also told one of her friends, who told her mom, and the mom called the police and social services to, to look into this. Um, when the police and social services uh, asked Julia about it, um, Rhonda's mom, uh, she said that Melanie, she thought Melanie was lying about it and that uh, Melanie was using drugs, and uh, basically she took uh, Nichols, um uh, word that he didn't do it and, um, you know, Rhonda at, uh, at, you know, at that point, you know, she's she's engaged to this guy. She's going to have a baby with this guy um, at, at some point and is uh, also denies it. So, you know, they're looking at, well, to get this in the court, the first thing a defense attorney is going to do is call Julia Simmons up and say, didn't you um, – Tell told police at that time that she was a liar and she was on drugs. So this is going to, it's, a, it's not a cut and dry case of, um, you know, that uh, where you don't have the, the, the girl's own mother saying she's a liar.
0: You also have a, another police official or a detective, Rosebra that be, becomes involved too, and and to further complicate this too is that there was different times where she lived with the couple, the, her sister and Steve Nichols, and engaged in sexual relations with them, and then moved out, and so and her story changed, at, and till this Rosebra, I guess, really dug in and got the facts behind this. Uh, you also talk about uh, a third motive as the, this investigation. Uh, proceeds amazingly if it, it wasn't enough motivation that they found all this evidence that there's another motive tell us what this third motive was and what they found in that part of the investigation
1: well the third motive is that um uh, Nichols had been appointed the trustee uh for uh a trust that uh his mother had set up on behalf of his sister and half sister, which was a, a rental building in San Diego. Um, and basically he was supposed to be, you know, kind of managing it for them. Um, he would get the, uh, the statements from the property manager and, and all these sorts of things and make, and you know, as a trustee, you're supposed to be watching out for the, the, the interests of the, the people involved in the trust. Um, but and this property, uh, have, was mortgaged to, it's about a million dollar property, and it was mortgaged to about $250,000, uh, you know, at the time that it went into the trust that the, the mother had died. Now we get to the summer of 2008, and the sisters find out that for some reason there's now, uh, the, the property now has an $800,000, uh, mortgage against it because, and, Slowly, uh, this takes a number of months, they find out it's because uh, Nichols has taken out two par- personal loans against the property, and he had no, uh, no right to do that. He, he wasn't supposed to be getting money out of this, and, and now this property is obviously much less valuable. In fact, most of the profits coming from the rental um, are going to pay uh, the loans that he took out on it. So he's obviously using this money to uh, do his day trading and whatever else he was doing with it Um, to the tune of he had taken out about another $500,000 against this property. And so um, they weren't getting payments except for every once in a while, a little bit here and a little bit there. So they eventually, um, while this is going on, uh, file a lawsuit against uh, Nichols um, to get uh, to get the in in their name the deeds away from him, as well as to force him to do an accounting of whatever happened to this five hundred thousand plus all the money that that came into it, which uh, uh, essentially went to uh, paying the the loan. So all this money over the course of uh, how many years, and I believe is close to about forty thousand dollars a month was coming in um that went somewhere else and so did the the, the equity in this property went somewhere else so they sued but uh, and here's the the big but on this one is the police didn't find us um they they did not know um about this possible uh motive uh with which is that in shortly before he went to uh he looked into life insurance, um, he'd been um, confronted by his siblings who said, hey, we're on to you, whatever happened to this money, and we want to know about it now. So if you put it all together, is he's confronted in October by his siblings about this. November, he goes and gets life insurance against, uh, on Rhonda's life, um, and, uh, just, uh, I think less than two weeks before Rhonda died, uh, he gets, uh, they filed a lawsuit against him, um, requ- you know, asking for a judgment that he, uh, you know, provide an accounting for all of this and, uh, uh, and also hand over the thief. So he's in serious financial, uh, trouble with his siblings, um, when he, signs up for life insurance policy, this policy. And then, uh, you know, shortly after Rhonda's death, uh, there's a judgment against him uh, saying, you know, give over the deeds and uh, account for the money. But at this time, uh, the police don't even know about it. And uh, this is one of those things where, uh, you know, if they'd asked one of his siblings anything about him, they would have found out about this you know that's uh, that's a pretty powerful motive for uh wanting money and needing to come up with a lot of money fast.
0: Exactly. You also in this um include on August 25th, 2009, Sherry Lee and her daughter Beth uh, tell us about this story.
1: Well, um While all this is going on, uh, Steve Nichols moves up to uh, a community near Bend, um, Oregon, uh, to live with his parents' uh, half-brother, and uh, he has Annie with him at this point. Um, And one night, he takes his uh, half-brother and his friends and a young girl, uh, 13-year-old, Um, swimming uh, to a pool, at a pool, obviously. And they're in the pool playing Marco Polo. He decides to join the kids. Uh, His half-brother is 14. I believe the other boy was as well. Um, There's the uh, 13-year-old. And he and she feels him grab her butt during um, this play. And uh, first she thinks it's an accident, but he does it again. And she tells him to stop and he's sort of uh you know, okay, ha ha ha. Um, but again she would later say that he did it several more times. Um anyway, uh he gets her home uh, about an hour late. Uh the mom's upset but, you know, uh doesn't know what to make of it. Then and, and then uh, a few days later, um uh so, hold on just a minute. Uh, a few days later, uh, she um, is uh, kind of snooping through her daughter's text from uh, some man who, uh, you know, just goes by Steve, and he's uh, all sorts of things. He's, he's asking her for hot photos of her and her friends. He sends her a text uh, asking if she wants to get in a hot tub with uh, him and, and three hot men, including the two boys a teenage boys yeah. and his friend. Um, and he sends a photograph of himself, um, shirtless in his bedroom. Um, you know, and, uh, taking a photo of himself in a mirror. Uh, obviously, a 34 year old man sending these sorts of photos to a 13 year old girl is, uh, pretty inappropriate. Um, and, and, and uh, and, and finally she breaks down and tells her mom, well, this is what happened that night. He grabbed, grabbed me. Uh, um, and, uh, and then he was sending me these texts and, you know, and she's 13 years old. It's not like she didn't She didn't respond at all, but she did finally stop break it off with him because she found he was just weirdly creepy, um, and got uncomfortable with, uh, with this whole thing. And, um, And eventually, so the mom uh, calls the the police, and the police look into it, and this is in Deschutes County Sheriff's Office, which is uh, where Bend is. And they come over, they listen to these stories. Nichols doesn't realize that they know about the text and have seen the text, and so he lies about it. That's one of the things he uh, he is uh, particularly good at is lying. Um, and so he lies about this, and they catch him in these lies, and he's arrested and charged with uh, felony counts of sexual abuse to a minor. And he tries to explain it as, oh, well, uh, my girlfriend died recently, and, uh, you know, I'm upset, and, and uh, this girl is a friend, and we talk. Uh, and once again, you get around to why is a 34-year-old man uh, feel that his closest confidant is a 13-year-old girl that he's sending half-naked photos of himself to.
0: Yeah, certainly nonsense. You say that he was released on a $50,000 bail, but each one of these sexual abuse one charges, uh, each could net him a possible 10 years. But you say right. investigation, however, goes cold.
1: And that's sort of where we end, uh, book one is that the, uh, at this stage, um,
0: uh, whether
1: it is the, uh, I mean, all these different sheriff's offices at this time, Hood River, Washington County and Deschutes, uh, Deschutes is, is made aware, uh, that he is, um, under investigation in some of these other cases, um, and uh, we'll leave it at that. They're, they sort of uh, stopped doing much of anything uh, as they watched the process of what's going on in Deschutes County with this underage um, minor case. Obviously, that's very tied to the Washington County case where Melanie Castro says he was doing uh, the same thing actually much more. They'd actually had a sexual affair um you know uh but uh, a, a very similar case and and obviously Nichols uh from his text and everything else was um attempting to groom this uh this uh, other young young woman um you know the invitations hey let's go out he send me you know hot photos of yourself and uh and these sorts of things so that's where book one. Uh, ends with uh, the, the case growing cold or stalled or I don't know how you want to describe it, but um, both of those work. Um, but Nichols is, um, he's uh, under investigation for homicide. Uh, he's under investigation in two different places for sexual abuse of a minor um, and he's being sued by his siblings. And In uh, book two we will pick up from there.
0: Absolutely. I want to thank you very much, uh, Steve Jackson, for coming on and talking about the first book in the series, Saving Annie, The Fall. And the next book will be the called The Investigator of the Saving Annie series. I want to thank you very much, Steve, for coming on and talking about this. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Well, thanks, Dan. It's always great talking to you. You have a great show.
0: Um, for those that uh, might not know, this is a wild blue uh Press production uh, publication. You are the publisher. Um, so tell us maybe how they can just go see what more work you have and other very, very deserving authors that are on Wild Blue Press.
1: Well, yeah, I, uh, you can go to wildbluepress.com. That's wildbluepress.com. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of great uh, true crime authors um, and books now. Uh, we're We've been in business since 2014 and uh, have been picking up steam ever since. Um, we're now putting out uh, about two true crimes uh, a month and the occasional uh, crime thriller as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, you can find my work there. You can find the work of uh, uh, a number of both uh, well-known true crime authors as well as we take on the, uh, the deserving rookie. Um, from time to time, and there are some really good books in there.
0: Absolutely. You've been doing a a great job, uh, and especially with all the great authors that uh, really didn't have a a publisher that understood true crime and uh, understood the genre as well as you, and so you've put out some really, really good uh, titles and with a great roster of really, really good authors. Uh, Thank you very much for another Wild Blue Press production. Saving Annie. Thank you very much, Steve Jackson. Hope to talk to you again soon. You have a great evening. Good night.
1: Thanks, Dan. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye.